We're very pleased to have Keith Erickson as our next speaker. Keith Erickson is an internationally acclaimed writer, speaker, and public historian. He currently serves as director of the Church History Library of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Erickson has authored numerous books and articles about public interest in history, including book-length studies of popular commem commemoration of Abraham Lincoln and the recent debate over the social studies curriculum in Texas. His work has been published in numerous journals. Uh, before leading the Church History Library, he was a tenured associate professor of history at the University of Texas, El Paso, where he served as executive director of the UTEP Centennial Celebration and founding director of UTEP's Center for History, Teaching, and Learning. Holds a bachelor's and master's degree from Brigham University, a doctoral degree in history from Indiana University, and a master's of business administration from the University of Texas, El Paso. He grew up near Baltimore, Maryland, and now lives near Salt Lake City, Utah, with his wife and his four daughters. At this time, we'd like to welcome Keith Erickson. Well, good morning. It's nice to be with you today. They told me I could move the mic, but it might not be tall enough. So uh, I'm thankful uh, to see you here. I'm thankful for the invitation to be with you today. The question of the Book of Mormon witnesses is extremely significant. Uh, several roles are defined in Revelation. The testimonies of the three and eight witnesses were published in the first edition of the Book of Mormon and every edition since. As the director of the Church History Library, where we hold <clears throat> the church's official archival manuscript and print collections, I have uh, sometimes the opportunity to review the records of the witnesses and the, the, those that are relevant, but we also happen to have the world's largest anti-Mormon collection, and that's because of section 123. Uh, an instruction that uh, counseled the, uh, the early saints <clears throat> to gather up libelous publications, magazines, encyclopedias, histories. That's a practice that we've continued through the 21st century. In those materials, the witnesses come under quite a bit of scrutiny. Uh, from the earliest satirical newspaper accounts to Mark Twain, who a little more whimsically said, I could not feel more satisfied if the entire Whitmer family had testified <laughs> to um, some of the more uh, modern PDF documents uh, that may or may not have been hastily cobbled together and, and placed on the internet. So today, this is what I'd like to do with this question of witnesses. I want to begin with a story, the story that we typically tell and then I want to tug on the story a little bit. I want to pull on it. I want to see what we can see uh, underneath. I want to use church curriculum to do this. I want to use some antagonistic writings to do this. Uh, I'd like to use some scripture to tug on the story that we think we know about the witnesses. Along the way, I hope to demonstrate and articulate for you some skills, some history skills that you can use to strengthen your study and your discipleship. I also hope that we can expand our view of witnesses and witnessing as we do this. So uh, let's, go at, let's go for it. Let's start with the story. 
Uh, This story comes from uh, one of the books in church curriculum, Our Heritage, published in 1996. This is the official companion to the uh, church history uh, course of study for gospel doctrine. And uh, this is all that it says about the witnesses. We have 300 words in this book. Uh, The book itself is about 150 pages. The witnesses get about three-quarter of a page. Now, as as we talk about stories, it's important to remember that the past is gone. In all of my storage vaults in the church history library, I do not have the past. I do not have a a spring day in 1820. I don't have an afternoon when nine men walked into a forest. Uh, the, The past is gone. The people are dead. What I do have are pieces of the past, pieces that are left over. They're in the form of stories. They're in the form of records. They're in the form of memories and reminiscences. But it's, these stories are what we have to try and think about what happened in the past. So if we take a quick look at this story, we see a lot of things that we commonly talk about when we talk about the witnesses. We see a reference to the revelation uh, of their uh, existence. We see um, <clears throat> that David Whitmer primarily narrates the story in this, and that we see them going into the woods, we see that they prayed, we see that an angel came, we, the angel shows them records and other objects, we see uh, <clears throat> that a voice, they heard a voice, and then it makes reference to eight other people uh, who also handled the plates. And that's the story. That's the story that we get in the curriculum. So I don't know if they told you, uh, so I'll warn you now, I want you to participate in this. So I want you to talk to your neighbor. I hope you sat by someone smarter than you so you learn. And if you didn't, oh well, there's another session next time. So I want you to talk to your neighbor. I've got listed here uh, what we have in this story, but you've been around. You know there's more to the story. What's not in this story? Talk to your neighbor for just a minute. Okay, I wish we had the ability to let each one of you talk about how much smarter your neighbor was than you and what they told you. Here's what I hope that you, I hope you said a couple of things in your conversation. I hope you said, oh yeah, I remember they tried with Martin Harris and then it didn't work and then they separated and tried again. I hope you noticed that in this story, in our heritage, It didn't say anything about the future, about them not denying their testimony. Uh, That's often part of the story, the way we tell it. Uh, There also are no details about the eight witnesses, their story, their experience. It was just really quick. You saw eight people uh, had a chance. 
And another interesting thing, uh, we didn't see the text of their testimony at all uh, in that Our Heritage account. So um, I want to keep poking at this story, though. Uh, I want to talk about some sources. Another thing uh, that you want to do as you read stories, as you hear stories, is, is ask, where is this coming from? So uh, they cite a couple of scriptures here, Nephi, Ether, uh, Doctrine and Covenants 17, and then there are a couple of end notes, and if we pull up that portion of the text, we see that the story is coming from two places. Uh, and I'd like to take a look at each of these real quick before we go forward. Uh, uh, footnote six there is to the history of the church. Uh, this publication is uh, more than 20 years old. Today we can go one step better than the history of the church. The Joseph Smith Papers, as part of that project, We've published the manuscript uh, of what became published and known as the history of the church. And so uh, we can go right here. This is in the handwriting of James Mulholland. And we can see the quote uh, and the story uh, right in that earliest draft of the manuscript history. Number five refers to a newspaper, the Saints Herald, uh, published in 1882. To track this one down, I used the book that you see on the screen, the cover there, uh, David Whitmer, uh, his witness. This is a book that compiles uh, all of his interviews. Uh, he did more than 70. He, he, David is the, most, uh, the witness who most went on record uh, with his testimony. They're, they're compiled in this volume. And so what you see on the screen there, uh, the open page, are, are from this, it turns out it was an interview, what was published in the newspaper, uh, Kelly and Blakesley, and there's some interesting things in this interview. Uh, we see the, the first place I've underlined that Whitmer is cautious uh, when these two show up and say, hey, we want to talk to you about your experience. They report that he's wary uh, because, and he tells them, uh, I've, I just did an interview and I told the reporter something and he went out and said I've denied my testimony. And so David Whitmer was kind of probing the interviewers and, and trying to feel, uh, is this someone I want to tell my story to? And then the second place that's underlined there, uh, you may be able to see that the interviewers, uh, this is in the 1880s, so there's no uh, audio recorder, there's no video recorder. Uh, they're taking notes, and they recognize their own uh, inability to capture everything. And so before they launch into the interview, uh, the, they say, this is pretty nearly what David Whitmer said, and we were happy to talk to him, uh, and they tell the story. And so uh, these are the two sources that we use um, in our heritage. Now, not every author is as careful, not every interviewer is as careful with the sources. This is one of the things that you want to look for. This is a page from Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, uh, and this is the part where she's talking about the witnesses, and right here she mentions, uh, this is how she frames it, David Whitmer told the editor of The Reflector, and then there's uh, a description that follows, but if we're thinking about this, this is the way it's presented in the text. Uh, Fawn Brody is quoting the editor, and David Whitmer told, <clears throat> told the editor. Well, uh, one of the benefits I have at the Church History Library is we have these things lying around in our storage vaults. So I called out the Palmyra Reflector, 
from the date that Fawn Brody cited to take a look at it. And uh, when we zero in here on this uh, paragraph, something interesting comes out. The witness described the book, and then the, uh, the writer says, our informant did not recollect precisely. So what's missing here is there was an informant in between the editor and David Whitmer, and the editor is telling us the informant didn't recollect precisely. I'm going to tell you one other thing about the reflector. Many of the pieces in the reflector were satirical. It was not quite, uh, it was a newspaper, so it wasn't like the onion today where everything is satire. But you would get uh, the stories in here, and this device of having the shadowy informant who may or may not remember everything particularly, that is a literary device that works well in satire, because you tell a story, uh, you attribute it somewhere fuzzy, uh, and then uh, you're off. And so, one of the things to say here is that we want to drill down and find the sources underneath the stories that we're telling, uh, here's a, here is the single best study of the witnesses and their testimony. If you want to read only one thing, I would recommend this book by Richard Anderson. But here's one of his conclusions. After looking at all of the testimony, he says, A main safeguard exists for testing the claims that a witness modified his testimony. Be sure that all statements come from the witness himself. So we've already mentioned that David Whitmer provided more than 70 statements. Uh, taken collectively, the witnesses have provided more than 200 first-person accounts of their experience and testimony being witnesses. Sometimes in history, we have no records, and so we're groping around. Is there a, maybe a report in a newspaper here? Is there another piece there? Can we put them together and come to some conclusion? In the case of the witnesses, we don't have that problem. Our problem is we have so many testimonies. And so if you find one of the, the smell tests, if you're reading something and you, and you see it's quoting a person fourth hand or second hand or another telltale sign if it's not very clear actually where they're quoting from, your reaction needs to be, I know there are more than 200 statements from the witnesses. I want to see those before I start figuring out where I got all of these other things from. So, all right. So that's our starting story. Now I want to start to tug on it a little bit. I want to share another story as we move forward uh, with the, the question of the witnesses. This story comes from the Institute Manual, Church History in the Fullness of Times. Here we have 1,200 words, four times as much space devoted to the witnesses. And so uh, a real quick uh, summary, uh, just like our heritage, it talks about the things that we've seen, although it doesn't talk about them seeing other records like the brass plates or objects like the Liahona. There are some things that are in this story. The things that we just talked about a few minutes ago about not being in our heritage are in uh, this manual. Um, 
We talk about the attempts with Martin Harris. They talk about the future uh, story of the witnesses, that five of them died active in the church, six fell away, two returned. Uh, they talk in detail about the eight witnesses. There's actually a table in there that identifies each of the witnesses and when they were born and has facts about them. And it contains the text of the testimony of the witnesses, a sample from the text. And then there are a few other things uh, that you may also have mentioned as you were talking to your neighbor. Uh, it talks about uh, Joseph reading the manuscript of the Book of Mormon before they went out, the three witnesses went out. Uh, it talks about the angel in the three witness experience turning the leaves of the plates uh, and showing them to the three witnesses. And then there's a passage about Joseph being extremely relieved when all of the witness experiences were done. All three of those uh, experiences come from the writings of Lucy Smith. Now, in the same way, we want to follow the sources here. You'll see that it quotes actually the same three scriptures, Nephi, Ether, Doctrine and Covenant 17. We see uh, Lucy Smith features prominently in the notes, uh, the history of the church, that narrative that, uh, that we've seen is also there, and testimony of the witnesses. Now I want to dig in on the testimony of the witnesses for just a moment here about <clears throat> where it came from. On the screen there's uh, a diagram of a couple of different manifestations of the text of the Book of Mormon. Uh, on the far side is the 1830 edition. We know the testimony of the witnesses was published there for the first time. On the other side, <clears throat> you see the gold plates, or I guess they, they look kind of like red plates today. Sorry about that. Uh, you see the plates. Were the testimony of the witnesses on the plates? No, obviously not. They're not part of that record. It contains instruction to get witnesses, so they're not there. So we have the question then, where does the testimony enter the stream of, of, of text? So when Joseph translates from the plates, he dictates, and the scribes write what we come to call today the original manuscript. And then Joseph instructed Oliver Cowdery to make a copy of the original manuscript. He'd learned from the 116 pages incident uh, to have a copy. The copy, that second one, is what went to the printer for the printing. And so that one's become known as the printer's manuscript. So uh, where do the testimony of the three witnesses enter the story? Well, the printer's manuscript has been preserved in the archive of the Community of Christ. And it was recently published as part of the Joseph Smith Papers. So we can see in Oliver's copy of the manuscript, there is a copy of the witness uh, testimony. This is in Oliver's handwriting. It's consistent with the rest of the manuscript. He copied the entire manuscript uh, and copied in the testimony of the witnesses. So that brings us back to the question, uh, what was the earliest draft of the testimony? Did they actually write it on the original manuscript, or did they write it down somewhere else? We know they write it down, because Joseph Smith, in his history, says, talks, he prefaces the testimony by saying the witnesses drew up and subscribed to the following document. Uh, in one of his uh, later uh, accounts, David Whitmer said that each of them signed his own name to the document. So the question is, where's that document? Where are their signatures? If there's 
Another extra document that was the first draft, we haven't found it. We don't know that it exists anywhere. So uh, that's one, if you're cleaning your attic and you find it, let me know. The original manuscript would be the other theory. Uh, maybe as they were dictating that, they just wrote it right there. The original manuscript has its own set of challenges uh, and they, they begin in its own history. When the saints lived in Nauvoo, Joseph put the original manuscript in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo house and then the saints moved west. Fifty years later or so, they open up the cornerstone, water had gotten in, the manuscript suffered extensive damage. Our best estimates today are that only 28% of the manuscript survived. About half of it's in the church history library, the rest are in other locations. But I want to tell you about something cool about this document. So the pieces that survive, and they look kind of like this, torn, soggy, uh, I mean, they've dried out in the years since the 1880s, but they were very damaged. Um, we have begun a process downstairs, our preservation division in the library, of using multispectral imaging to take photographs of the manuscript pieces. All of the pieces that, have, that are not in the library's collection have been loaned to us in recent months to do this. We can take uh, more than two dozen uh, photographs with different light on the spectrum from infrared to ultraviolet and visible light. So we can take the document that you see on the screen there and we can do something like this at, at one spectrum of light and reveal text that you can't see uh, to the visible eye. Then we'll take uh, the variety of different spectra that we can use and we'll put them into a composite version that gives the best reading of the, the document. Now, you know what this page happens to say? And it came to pass. Okay, no. Uh, <laughs> many of the pages say that. Um, so this will be, the, the preservation work has been going on this year. They'll be published as part of the Joseph Smith papers uh, in a few years from now trying to figure out just exactly, we want to publish original photographs so you can see what they look like. We want to pu publish the best composite that gives you the best chance of reading it. And we're trying to figure out ways uh, to share, most likely it'll be online, uh, different light spectra that you can kind of play with yourself. But if you want to know more about this, I'm happy to say that the, the library has just started a blog called The Historical Record. And uh, we've just posted an article about this photographic process, and uh, we're really excited uh, over the next couple of years as we work this together and bring it forward. Uh, everything we know from the original manuscript uh, of the Book of Mormon will be published there. So uh, we've picked up a couple skills as we've done these stories and played with the stories. We've done some really close reading. We're analyzing. We're looking at multiple accounts. We're corroborating what we find. We're following the sources. And one of the things you want to do is expect citations. There are publishers, I won't name them, who will publish things without citations. That's the first sign. If they don't even care enough to tell you where they found their historical information, don't worry about spending the time to figuring out if they've made it up or if they haven't. That's going to be one of your first tests. I expect to see citations and I expect them to be good if this is someone who wants to be convincing me of something about history. 
So we also, along the way, we've talked about a couple of these books, Richard Anderson's book, uh, Lyndon Cook edited the David Whitmer interviews. Uh, there's another one that BYU Studies put out called Opening the Heavens, uh, where many of the witness testimonies are included in that volume as part of their uh, discussion of, uh, of their experience. So, okay, <clears throat> I'm not done tugging on this story. And I want to tug on it now from the standpoint of Scripture. Many distinguished commentators in recent years, including Ezra Taft Benson, Grant Hardy, Terrell Givens, have urged people to take the Book of Mormon more seriously. Uh, many times people uh, interpret that to mean I'm going to read it or I'll read it again. Today, I want to interpret that by using the Book of Mormon to poke at our stories of the witnesses because I don't think we've really understood everything that we need to understand. And I think the Book of Mormon turns out to be a place that points to some things that we should have been paying attention to that we haven't. So uh, when we're in, back in the Institute Manual, you see that it makes reference to Nephi, uh, Nephi's writing. But I want to look at another one. It's cited both times, but not called out. This is a passage from the book of Ether. Our best understanding of the way the translation unfolded was that when Oliver Cowdery arrived in the spring of 1829, he and Joseph picked up right where they left off uh, after the 116 pages. So they picked up in Mosiah, translated to the end of the text, and then they found the small plates and translated there, and then those were attached at the front of the story. So Ether, in that uh, scenario, this passage in Ether was the first one Joseph encountered, telling him about witnesses. And then when they got to Second Nephi, it would have been a second place to talk about this. So this passage is interesting. And I want to, I want to look at a couple of the phrases piece by piece. First is this one that I just highlighted that says that the experience will be shown to the witnesses by the power of God. Now, uh, <clears throat> talk to your neighbor again. I hope your neighbor isn't asleep. Poke, poke your neighbor. Here's what, here's what I want you to talk about. Where have you heard that language before? Shown by the power of God. Where have you heard it? In church history, in scripture, that's the wording. Where have you heard it? Talk to your neighbor. Okay, I didn't hear quite as much talking about this one as we did the first time. <clears throat> Was this one tougher? Well, let me give you a few places that I've seen it. <clears throat> first one on the screen is the passage in Ether. Similar language comes back again in 2 Nephi, in that passage. Similar language appears on the title page of the Book of Mormon, that it was translated by the gift and power of God 
And it turns out every time Joseph was asked in his life, how did you translate the plates, he, this is the type of language he used. We don't have a single statement from Joseph where he said, I had a seer stone, I had a hat, I did this, it was morning, it was afternoon. It's the scribes who give us that kind of detail. There was even a conference in 1831 where Hiram kind of nudges Joseph to the fore and says, tell us how the book was translated. And Joseph says, it was translated by the gift and power of God. So this phrase, <clears throat> I think, is a really important phrase as we think about the translation and the witness experience. So I want to ask another question. This is going to be a little harder. What is not in that language? So it's always easy to ask, uh, what do you see on the screen? But now I want you to think about every other context you can think about, witnesses, testimonies. What's not part of this language? Well, let me give you a couple of, uh, of examples. One thing I don't see here <clears throat> in the passage, in the language, in the way that it's used, I don't see the invocation of legal rhetoric. Now, we know Joseph cared about the law because when it came time to copyright the Book of Mormon, he went in, he filed for the copyright, he knew about the law, he knew how legal proceedings worked. When it came time to organize the church, we again hear Joseph talking about uh, according to the laws of New York. When we talk about witnesses, we don't have language like, well, you need to have an affidavit, and you need to have um, the constable sitting there. Any of the, any of the legal, legal language, I don't see in this passage. There's some other language that Joseph uses later. By the time they're in Nauvoo, we see this in section 127, 128, when they're talking about baptisms for the dead, there are language that emerges about eyewitnesses and certifying that what was happened and conveying that record uh, to the central record place. So we don't see either of those, the legal language or the temple language of eyewitnesses and certification in these descriptions of what the witnesses were supposed to do. So... <clears throat> couple of skills we've been working on right here. We've been asking some questions. We asked a connecting question. Where did you see that language? And then we asked a comparison question. What's not here? Compare it to other things you know. What don't you see? And those lead us to probably one of the most important skills that we need when we understand anything from history is to avoid present assumptions. If I walk into a discussion about the three witnesses and I assume this was a legal proceeding, therefore there's going to be a judge and a record and a signed affidavit, I'm going to turn out really frustrated and sad because, gosh darn it, those 200-year-old people weren't behaving the way that we behave in 21st century America. How could they not do that? So we've got to beware of the present assumptions that we inflict on the past because we do damage to the past when we do that. Now here's one other assumption that we inflict from the 21st century. We find it in some other passages. Doctrine and Covenants uh, 17 talks about seeing with your eyes. 
I talked to so many people in the 21st century, and by the way, I've not talked to anyone from the 19th century, just so you know. But in the 21st century, as I talk to people, this is often a challenge. They ask me, well, did they see it with their eyes or was it a vision? And one of the things that's going on there, it's unstated, but it's a modern assumption, and frankly, we do this all the time in the church, in church discourse. We have set up our conversation, we forced it into a dichotomy. There are only two things. Either they saw it with their eyes, or they saw it in a vision, and it can't be both. We do this all the time. A lot of times when people are talking to me about a faith crisis, the language uh, goes like this. Well, I used to have faith, and now I have doubt. You see, the common underlying assumption is that there are only two things that I can have. And if I start to have one, doubt, then I must stop having the other one, faith. That's something that we're bringing from the 21st century. That's something that we want to shed. I would encourage you to replace the or with an and. Now that's going to feel weird to you and maybe some of your friends. No, I can't have faith and doubt at the same time. Of course you can. The scriptures are full of stories of people who have faith and doubt at the same time. Why have we in the 21st century said, no, it's either all faith or it's all doubt. There's nowhere in between. My favorite story that illustrates this is in the New Testament. When a father brings his sick child to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal the child, and Jesus says, I can if you'd believe. And the father says, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Could you imagine confessing to Jesus face to face that you have faith and doubt at the same time? Oh, you're in for a big scolding, right? Of course not. What did the Savior do? He healed the Son. And, I believe, along the way, he strengthened the unbelief part of that father. It's okay to have faith and doubt. And when we add doubt, we can add other things. We can add, I don't know. That's a valid answer. The past is gone. There are lots of things we don't know. We can add things change. So we want to break away from the present assumptions that we take. I want to go back to another passage in this, uh, in the, this text from Ether. It's the one in verse 2 that's underlined. Those who shall assist to bring forth this work. So one of the things that it strikes me, when we talk about the witnesses, we focus a lot on their witness experience. We've just narrated that experience. And then sometimes we talk about what happened later. But have you ever asked the question, how did they assist in this work? Well, among the three witnesses, two of them, served as scribes while Joseph was dictating the text of the Book of Mormon. David Whitmer provided a place, his home, for the translation, and Martin Harris provided money. Oliver Cowdery participated in the restoration of the priesthood. He baptized eight of the other ten witnesses. Joseph baptized David Whitmer and his brother Hiram, the rest of the witnesses were baptized by Oliver. Oliver served, this one uh, may be less interesting to you and more to me, Oliver served as the first recorder of the church. 
He held that official position as church recorder. When we consider all uh, 11 of the witnesses, we see five served as scribes. We have five of the six members at the day the church was organized, the sixth being Joseph. Uh, we see six who went on to serve as missionaries. And in addition to the first church recorder, we also see the first church historian. So, yes, they assisted in this work in many, many ways. But assisting is an interesting word. There's a two-way relationship applied to assisting, right? Somebody, the witnesses are assisting, but someone else is being assisted. Who is it that needed help? Who is it that felt alone? This is one of the details that Lucy Smith adds to our story. After the witness experience ends, she reported that Joseph came back and said to her and, and others, you do not know how happy I am. I do feel as though I was relieved of a dreadful burden which was almost too much for me to endure, but they will now have to bear a part of it, and it does rejoice my soul that I am not any longer to be entirely alone in the world. That's really sad language right there. Entirely alone in the world. How long had Joseph been feeling that? Entirely alone in the world. I wonder if that loneliness extended beyond the world. You know, um, the passage in Ether was written by who? Moroni. This is one of the interventions where Moroni is translating, and he, he writes this passage to the witnesses. Moroni is an interesting expert on loneliness. He witnessed the destruction of his people. He finished his father's record. He experienced loneliness. He wrote about it. He translated the plates of ether and attached them. He sealed them up with the interpreters. He held the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim. And for centuries, prophets had prayed that these records would be preserved. And they had been, right to that moment that Moroni had them. And those same prophets prayed that the records which would come forth, which it depended entirely upon him. In order to succeed, Moroni appeared in the 19th century at least 23 different times. I think Moroni was anxious about making sure this whole thing got handed off and turned out right, and that relief, this is me imagining how angels feel. I have no experience, so maybe he didn't feel any relief at all. But I would imagine he was feeling relieved after centuries of work this has been handed off, and it's gone where it was supposed to go. Now, one of Moroni's appearances that we've talked about here provides one more twist on this question of assisting and loneliness. I've talked uh, for a few minutes about the way that the, the formal witnesses assisted in the work, and I talked about formal roles, callings, positions, missions, uh, things like that. But while David Whitmer invited Joseph to come to his home and translate the Book of Mormon here, what that meant in real life for David Whitmer's wife Mary was more work. Joseph came, 
Oliver came. Emma came. Visitors came. In and out, in and out. Larger meals, smaller meals, more to clean, more, more to do. And so, one night, as Mary Whitmer walked alone from her house chores out to her milking, Moroni appeared to her and showed her the plates. And he said, through stories that the Whitmer family reported, this particular one was on a fact-finding mission to Joseph F. Smith, they reported, uh, and we have three different accounts of this, so I've chosen one, that they reported that Moroni says to Mary Whitmer, you have been very faithful and diligent in your labors, but you are tried because of the increase of your toil. It is proper, therefore, that you should receive a witness that your faith may be strengthened. So using our comparison tools, we'll step back. The men, to be witnesses, they prepared. They went to the woods. They prayed. They repented. Mary kept house, did chores, milked cows, cared for guests. The men were given a witness to share with the world. Mary was given a witness to strengthen her personal faith. Clearly, Moroni, who understood a thing or two about loneliness, had a larger view of what it means to assist in this work. Okay, one more passage right here at the end that I want to look at. It's these two words right at the bottom. All this, they're underlined. All this, I think, are two words that we've missed when we talk about the story of the witnesses. Now, we've got to go back in the sentence to see what we're talking about. We see that it's talking about the testimony of the three witnesses. It's also talking about this work, the book, the Book of Mormon. So their testimony, the book itself, and the book will show the power of God and his word. And then there's another clause, of which the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost bear record. So there's a third thing. All this, which will stand as a testimony, is, includes three parts. The testimony of the witnesses, the book itself, and then a record that is promised. So the story of the witnesses can't end with their experience. It also can't end with their death to say that they didn't deny it. It must continue to include this record that's born of God. Now, one of the sections that talk about the witnesses that we don't see in the footnotes of any of the curriculum we've looked at is in section 5, and it talks about the testimony of the three witnesses will go forth, and whosoever believeth on my words, them will I visit with the manifestation of my spirit. So there's a promise. Not just that the testimony will go forth, but there's a manifestation that's going to follow it and come to those who ask for it. I think the most beautiful place I have ever seen this part of the story illustrated is on the monument at the birthplace of Joseph Smith in Vermont. The monument was erected in 1905, long after the witnesses were dead. It was on the 100-year anniversary of Joseph's birth. But on the side of the monument, there's some text that I, that's reproduced on the screen. The title of the text is Testimony of Joseph Smith. And as you read through the first paragraph, you see the spring of 1820. The second paragraph, you see angels. You see the plates going down. You see the churches organized. You see Joseph's death. 
And then there's an interesting phrase that just jumped right out to me. In 1905, they inscribed on this monument, over a million converts to this testimony have been made throughout the world. Now those of you who have your church almanac in your lap are going to say, no, wait a minute, the church didn't reach one million members until 1947. And it was kind of exciting, a centennial of the pioneers, and we reached a million members. Well, those are a million living members at a single time. When we talk today about there being 16 million members of the church, we're talking about living people. What he inscribed on the monument is, since 1830, over a million people, many of whom are now dead, are converts to this testimony. So the inscription on this monument is not a testimony by Joseph. It's a testimony about Joseph, by us, who visit the site, who think about the work. It's a testimony that includes the three and the eight. It includes the roughly 15,000 saints who were living at the time of Joseph's death. It includes the 16 million who are alive today. It includes prophets and apostles. It includes members who are female and male, black and white, Republican and Democrat, quarterbacks and Motown singers, businessmen, and you and me. We're part of this collective witness. Joseph walked out of the grove. He has passed on. But God is not dead. One of the things that we can ask is, what were you doing on a spring day in 1820? That's what God is promising here. The testimony will go forth and it will be followed by a manifestation by those who ask for it. This manifestation comes as a kind of reinforcement. Joseph Fielding Smith described it this way in Essentials in Church History, a volume uh, that was in print for more than half a century. Reinforced as that testimony, Joseph's testimony, is by the testimony of 11, by the witness which the book itself affords, the testimony given by Joseph Smith becomes binding on the world. That word binding is an interesting word because I saw it somewhere else. I saw it in Webster's Dictionary, published in 1828, the first dictionary that he published, American Dictionary, about the word keystone. We talk about the Book of Mormon. Joseph used this word about the Book of Mormon being the keystone of our religion. We often talk about the stone part, that it's wedged, it goes to the top of the arch. But what's interesting that in 1828, Webster said, when you use a keystone, you bind the work. There's a fastening that happens. I think this is part of the witness testimony. So, Summing up a few things here that uh, we've said. We've looked at the story that we see in our heritage. We've tugged on it with other places in the church curriculum. We've used antagonists to poke at it. We've used scripture to open up to things that we might not have seen before. I hope in doing this, we've been able to expand our thinking about the witnesses and what they did and what they mean. I hope we've expanded, we can expand beyond three and eight to include Mary Whitmer. I hope we include in this conversation the text of the Book of Mormon itself, the spiritual manifestation that is open to everyone and has been received by millions. 
I hope we can ponder on words like assist and loneliness and binding. And I hope you start to see those in other places in your reading, in the scriptures, and that other insights are open to you. I also hope that we've been able to demonstrate uh, some of these skills along the way today. Because the doctrine of the LDS Church has been revealed through time, here a little, there a little, Knowing a little bit about historical thinking skills will better help us understand, explain, and defend our doctrine. So if you were to pick up something now that was critical of the witnesses, whether it was the Palmyra Reflector or Fawn Brody or something more recent on the internet, these skills will help you make sense of what you're reading. Take the CES letter, for example. A document circulates on the internet today that dedicates 19% of its pages to the question of witnesses. I promise you that if you pick up the document with these skills that you've uh, gained today and practice them a little in your other reading, pick it up, you, and as you read closely, the way we've read, as you ask questions about what you're reading, I promise you, you will find, because I found, statements that are presented with no citation. Statements that have abbreviated citations that obscure the original source. You will find multiple present assumptions that are being inflicted from the 21st century onto 19th century historical experience. You will find one major forced either-or position that the author wants you to take one or the other, and you can push back and say, I'll take both. You'll find weak historical evidence and no spiritual evidence. So yes, a 21st century search engine can return millions of hits on the topic of witnesses. That means that we need to be more discerning in what we do with those hits. Now, couple of things here if you'd like to learn more. I don't make any money off of any of these here. So one of them was published in the Ensign in February. The other one is published on the church's website, lds.org, in the history section. These are places where I've explained in more detail these skills. And I invite you to look there, bone up on the skills, use them in all of your reading. And I hope you will then join the three, the eight, the Whitmer family, yes, Mark Twain, all of them, and the millions who have received a witness of the Book of Mormon. May you also join the ranks of those in the 21st century who know how to read and analyze and discuss the historical nature of our doctrine and our church. Thank you very much for listening today. So there's a stack of questions. So I need to do a survey of the audience. These questions are standing between us and lunch. <laughs> and so was my talk, which I tried desperately to finish before lunch. Um, we'll answer a couple of these. Uh, I'm going to give you one that I don't know, but I'll go look it up. This one came up before, before I even started. This was sitting on the podium. Uh, and the question is, uh, who put David Whitmer's testimony on his tombstone in Missouri? Uh, I don't know, so I'll have to look that one up. If, if you ask that question, give me your business card or something, and we'll go there. Um, okay. 
Let's see. Uh, in addition to witnesses of the gold plates, were there also witnesses of the translation process who saw Joseph dictating to his scribes? How significant are these witnesses in your view? It's a great question. They, these are very significant uh, witnesses. We have multiple scribes uh, in the process. And one, one thing you know about the translation process is it differed over time. Uh, the way Martin Harris did it uh, early on, uh, when Joseph was copying characters was different than the way it happened later on when Oliver Cowdery talked about uh, there being a seer stone that Joseph put in a hat and looked at. So there are many uh, accounts uh, from the scribes. Uh, Emma is certainly one of those. She talks about being a scribe. Emma is representative too of the Smith family. Several other members of the Smith family, Lucy, uh, William, uh, either held uh, the plates when they were wrapped, uh, or Emma talks about moving them on the table and tracing the edges with their fingers. Uh, so there are many uh, other accounts, and I think they're very significant. So look close at Joseph Smith's family, look close at the scribes. Uh, one of the books on the screen, Opening the Heavens, that's as a citation where you can find lots of that kind of testimony of the translation. Uh, besides the church history library, where are some of the pages of the original manuscript kept? Uh, there's a museum, a printing museum that has uh, some of them. It's probably the next uh, largest size uh, of collection. And then a lot of them are in private hands. Uh, when the, the person who pulled the original manuscript out of the cornerstone was Louis Bitterman, Emma's uh, second husband, and he handed them out as souvenirs. A piece here, a piece there, people who came through Nauvoo. And so many pieces went different ways, and so there are a lot of them, too. So if you find one of those in your attic, let me know uh, as well. With all, Oh, yeah, that's a big one. Uh, let's see. Oh, okay, I'm going to do that one. It's about rumors. I like talking about those. Okay, I'll follow up on a few that uh, we talked about uh, in the talk. Uh, the book on witnesses by Richard Anderson was published in 1981. Is there an updated version coming? Uh, I don't believe so. Um, but it was good in 1981. And you know what? Our antagonists haven't really thought up anything smart since 1981 anyway. What you find on Google is someone reporting something from the Palmyra Reflector or from uh, Philastus Hurlbut. And so you're going to be able to find uh, Richard Anderson tackling uh, all of that evidence in 1981. So uh, don't worry about it being um, a couple uh, decades old. <clears throat> okay. Um, I agree with all you said about faith and doubt, but it seems like seeing or witnessing by the gift and power of God implies a vision, not a physical seeing. This is, this is either physical or spiritual. Uh, which do you think? So I'm going to poke right back at your question because you, you put right in the question, this implies a vision, not a physical seeing. That's 
that is you. That's your implication. You're saying in the 21st century, I think it has to be either one. I'm saying um, it can be both. Another interesting place, I, uh, it may have been on screen, or you can find it in the Doctrine and Covenants. There's a revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about Joseph, his testimony of the Book of Mormon coming by the power of God. You see, now wait a minute. Joseph carried the plates. He hid the plates. He held the plates. He copied characters from the plates. Clearly, if we use this 21st century dichotomy, clearly he saw them. He has a witness. And yet, at the same time, Joseph uses that same language. It's by the power of God that I have the witness. Okay, the rumor. Will this be the last one? I've heard a faith-promoting rumor that the sword of Laban and the Liahona are somewhere hidden. Confirm or deny? <laughs> okay, you know me. I'm going to poke this one right back at you. Th this question, I've been the director of the Church History Library for three years. This is the most common question I get asked. After, uh, is there a record of my ancestor there, and I say, no, that's the family history library. So after that question, the sort of living is the most common question. And here's my question to you in the 21st century. Where did that come from? Now let me give you some details here. The plates, the gold plates, we know were entrusted to Joseph Smith. Or I'll use some archival terminology. Moroni had them in his archive he transferred them to Joseph, and then there were some transfers back and forth, um, and then Joseph gave them back. Now, for the record, if Moroni is listening, I would accept such a transfer to my archive. Um, <laughs> I haven't been approached yet about that uh, transfer. So we have lots of records about the plates being transferred, being in the possession of 19th century mortals. We don't have any records, and I'll use the same language, of the sword of Laban or Leahona being transferred. They're shown. David Whitmer talks about seeing them when he sees the plates. Oliver Cowdery has another story uh, about walking into a cave and seeing the sword of Laban and other records. But we have no story, and this is what I can confirm or deny, the sword and the, and the Leahona have not been transferred to the custody of a mortal uh, in our dispensation. And so I just wonder where the question comes from, uh, because we don't have any record that, that Joseph had the sword, or Oliver used it in his garden, or uh, we just, it never entered the procession of a 19th century character. So um, thank you very much for the great questions.